What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Yassine Almandra is a thematic analyst at ARK Invest focused on Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrencies. In this conversation, we discussed ARK Invest's philosophy on crypto, why they are so bullish on Square, what people should understand about Bitcoin's volatility during COVID-19, how the halving should play out, the latest on Libra, and how Yassine thinks about Ethereum. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. But before we get into this episode, I want to quickly talk about our two sponsors. The first is Crypto.com. Crypto.com is a pioneering payment and cryptocurrency platform that seeks to accelerate the world's transition to cryptocurrency. They have a vision to put cryptocurrency in every wallet, which is frankly why we are all here. The Crypto.com app offers a full range of financial products with competitive pricing, well-designed user experience, and high security. It is the best place to buy, sell, and pay with crypto. These guys have been longtime supporters of Off The Chain and keep launching new product after new product. So do yourself a favor and go to Crypto.com to check them out. Again, that's Crypto.com, the place where mass adoption is occurring. Our second sponsor is Ledger. Ledger's pre-recorded an advertisement that I'm going to play now, and then we'll get into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Digital assets custody can be quite difficult to secure and hard to scale. Firms are often left with a difficult decision, having to choose between security or liquidity. At Ledger, we're obsessed that our clients' businesses succeed. That is why we decided to create a digital asset platform that would enable financial institutions and crypto firms to manage their funds without compromising on security and liquidity. Firms like Uphold, Bitstamp, Crypto.com, Index, and Dunamu are already using Ledger Vault to operate their business at scale while maintaining the highest standards of security to protect their clients' funds. Visit ledger.com slash vault to learn more. Control, scalability, agility, because security is not enough. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Yassine here. Uh, He is coming to us uh, live, I guess, kind of um from uh, morocco uh so thanks so much for uh, doing this thanks for having me it's uh it's an honor to be here for sure um let's jump in uh how long have you been at arc invest and kind of what you know for those that don't know just your investment philosophy in general sure so uh i joined arc in uh, july of 2018 right after college I'm definitely not uh, an OG Bitcoiner, so I, I don't have any stories about you know how I bought 100 Bitcoin and lost my private keys or anything like that. Um, so my my break into Bitcoin was actually happened kind of serendipitously uh, over overlapped with my general approach to to college and and finding a job uh, and really kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. Uh, in my first few years of college, I, I definitely uh, knew what I didn't want to do, um, and I know you have a a recent, uh, you had a recent podcast with David Perel um, that kind of talks about his break into figuring out what he wanted to do. A lot of what, what he does overlaps, but I, what, I, what I kind of uh, broke, how I broke into it. Uh, and uh, effectively, um, 
I, I, I walked into like an info session um, on my, my freshman year. Uh, everyone was kind of wearing a suit. Uh, everyone kind of had an accompanied stack of business cards with them and, and they were drilling over these recruiters of investment banking and consulting and uh, kind of getting one step closer to landing that interview to get that summer job. Once you get that summer job, you kind of land that full-time job and then from there you're, you basically um, and so realizing this, I kind of told myself that I didn't want to fall into this trap uh, and that there was definitely kind of another way to do that. Uh, and so in, in, in college, I, I studied uh, system engineering and finance. Um, and so um, I, I kind of knew I didn't want to do investment banking consulting, uh, but at the same time kind of wanted to apply both the uh, kind of finance side of things and system engineering side of things to, to figure out some sort of, sort of overlap. Um, my junior year of college, I, I, I interned at a, a venture capital fund, um, and they kind of typically don't really hire uh, first-year analysts. Uh, so very quickly, I realized that there was only so much added value that I could provide beyond just kind of basic KPIs and, and industry analysis. Um, and then that's where kind of crypto and Bitcoin came in, where um, I had kind of heard of crypto through the grapevine, but uh, never really had the opportunity to dig deep. Um, this was at the time kind of before the ICO boom. Uh, and so I kind of asked the partners at my VC if I could kind of look into crypto from both the tech and investment perspective. Um, and then realized very, very quickly that this was really a small but growing market that was underestimated. Uh, and so I found out that, you know, in very few things where expertise and experience doesn't matter, I found that crypto was one of those things. Uh, and so throughout the remainder of my college, I kind of learned obsessively about kind of Bitcoin uh, and, and told myself that this is kind of what I want to do uh, full time in the space. I was definitely by no means an expert, but that summer I kind of created a Twitter account, started sharing interesting ideas and actually stumbled a, across ARC through Twitter. Um, and so I know you had Kathy on the, on the podcast uh, a, a few days ago or, or a week ago or whenever this is going to be published. Um, and well, she kind of founded uh, ARC based on kind of two premises. Uh, the first was that kind of the research that the, the way that research is set up in kind of traditional asset management firms, um, there's kind of a huge, huge lack of that. And in particular, uh, the way that, that uh, asset management firms um, kind of set up their research in the way that the compliance is set up uh, to kind of uh, vet that research is very, very limited in terms of how that research can then be used um, and shared. Uh, and so, you know, a combination of that in kind of technological disruptive, uh, technological disruption and disruptive innovation more broadly, um, made it such that she, she kind of, she founded ARC um, in, in 2015 um, and uh, focused exclusive, focusing exclusively on disruptive innovation. Um, and, and across kind of uh, a, a wide array of, of what we call kind of technology platforms. Of those technology platforms um, is kind of crypto and blockchain. So ARC, um, in particular, Kathy's relationship with Bitcoin actually predates ARC's founding. Um, so, you know, in, in the most recent interview, Kathy mentioned that, that she had this weekly brainstorm session where she and, and, and the analysts kind of gather every week to discuss any provocative news, any breakthroughs in research. Um, and so it was actually back in, in her time at Alliance Bernstein in late 2011, uh, when uh, the first kind of brainstorm session was conduct, 
conducted about Bitcoin. Um, obviously, at the time, we were kind of far from any realistic means to gain any sort of exposure. Uh, but fast forward to 2015, um, when, when, when ARC uh, really started to take Bitcoin seriously, um, and we published kind of our first white paper on if Bitcoin could kind of serve the, the three roles of money. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, we took our first position in GBTC, uh, or the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust, uh, when Bitcoin started to trade around $200. Uh, and then a few months after that, we published a second white paper on Bitcoin um, as really the birth of, uh, of a new asset class um, at the time when kind of uh, Chris Bernisky, who's now a placeholder, um, was kind of leading the, the research uh, there. Um, and so we kind of, we get this question a lot because we, we were one of the first investors in quote unquote GBTC or we're the first kind of public fund manager to gain exposure to Bitcoin. Um, but we don't actually hold any, any underlying Bitcoin and our exposure to the kind of crypto opportunity more broadly is actually exclusively in kind of public companies that offer potentially interesting derivative exposures. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about um, how you guys are gaining that exposure, and then we can talk more, I think, about just institutional investors in general. But starting with you guys, so uh, you're investors in GBTC, then you invest in a number of other businesses, uh, almost exclusively in the public markets, and those publicly traded companies may be something like a Square that has a number of different products or, or kind of uh, revenue streams. One of them could be Bitcoin. Right, so you almost get like indirect exposure to Bitcoin through a business that benefits from Bitcoin uh, as a product or, or something that they offer, uh, and then combine that with the GBTC, you're really kind of getting exposure in multiple ways. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So there are definitely public companies that offer interesting derivative exposure to crypto, um, and you know Square is actually one of our highest conviction names. Where you know Square's primary business model has nothing really necessarily to do with Bitcoin or crypto. But when you actually dig deep into potential kind of revenue streams down the line, you start to realize um, how interesting the opportunities um, there, there, there are. So actually part of our um, research and part of our thesis is that you have these technology platforms that are kind of converging. Um, and so the idea of having like a traditional tech analyst or traditional auto analyst or traditional energy analyst in this new world does not necessarily fit. And so, when you kind of look at like a company like Square, um, there are so many kind of different ways where you can tackle the investment thesis. So obviously the one that mo a lot of us know is kind of at high level, you have these retail banks um, that pay between you know, $350 and $1,500 to acquire new customers. And you, you contrast that with a company like Square, which has one of the most you know, popular digital wallets in, in the Cash App, um, which has a customer acquisition cost of around $20. And so this goes back actually to one of ARC's overarching theses, which is around this idea that cost declines are a primary force behind technologically enabled disruption. And so the same holds true in, in consumer banking. And so um, our, our FinTech analyst, so I don't actually cover Square as a stock, but our FinTech analyst, Max Friedrich, has done incredible work on how um, this kind of unlocks a massive market where you say that there are, let's say, 20 million people in the U.S. who are still unbanked. Um, to put this kind of into perspective, you know, Citibank has 20 million customer accounts in the U.S. today. Um, and when you, what's really interesting to see is when you see the comparison of, of the FDIC's unbanked rates and Google search trends for Square's Cash App, um, which kind of maxed them a lot of work on, 
there's a very compelling kind of geographic overlap um, that that makes that makes it such that you know Cash App dominates the southern states where the rates of the uh, unbanked are highest. Um, you have kind of these features like direct deposit, which Square introduced in 2018, that lets Cash App users um, generate these kind of routing and account numbers uh, that you'd kind of get in in normal checking accounts, um, and then they can then pass that on to to facilitate uh, the deposit to their own employers. Uh, and you can basically uh, spend paychecks from your Cash App balance um, with a, a debit card that, that Cash App issues. Um, and so when you combine that with um, a, an extremely savvy network-based marketing strategy with a clear product roadmap, you basically come to what could be a fully functional digital bank. Um, they've built a, a, a robust user base targeting specific consumer networks um, you have extremely sticky P2P payments. Um, and, and so there's a growing realization that, uh, that most banking functions can basically migrate to, to your iPhone. Um, notice how in none of that Bitcoin, did Bitcoin ever really come up? And, and so then you layer on top of that, you know, something like Bitcoin, where you look at Jack Dorsey as being the only CEO, I, I would say, of two public companies that truly understands Bitcoin's value proposition. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, I, I think that we can't underestimate the role kind of Square and Jack um, are, are playing in kind of bringing Bitcoin to the masses. And there are a few interesting angles that Square has taken in, in its involvement in Bitcoin that I think are, is very unique. I mean, I, at, at one level you have, let's say, you know, the Cash App providing an you know, easy interface to buy, sell, send Bitcoin. Um, and and you know, it, what's interesting is that the Cash App isn't like a Bitcoin first product. And so it's almost like, a, oh, by the way, there is a, another avenue by which you can learn about Bitcoin and it's through the Cash App and you already have the Cash App downloaded on your phone. And so there's this educational on-ramp and, and normalizing of Bitcoin that I think that Square is doing that many people don't yet realize. Um, and then on the, uh, on the flip side of that, you have something like, you know, a, a year ago where, where Square set up, let's say, Square Crypto. Um, and that is basically a separate corporate entity um, whose really sole function is to sponsor Bitcoin developers and further the Bitcoin ecosystem. So kind of foregoing short-term profits uh, for kind of the, 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 uh, the, to the benefit of Bitcoin. And so... Uh, having a public company uh, that has to appeal to sh shareholders that then acknowledges that, you know, ultimately we're long-term investors and Bitcoin success, Square success is, is a really, really interesting kind of angle that I think that very few kind of public companies have the foresight to, to take. Um, and so when you combine that with the fact that Square also has access to millions of merchants, um, they could end up hypothetically cutting out card networks entirely if you have both the customer and the merchant who are on board. Um, and in, 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 in doing so, that using potentially Bitcoin as a settlement layer. And so there are several layers to this. Um, so that the, that's kind of how we view, uh, view Square more broadly. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, it's a very, very interesting, unique way of getting kind of that derivative exposure to the Bitcoin opportunity. For sure. And then maybe talk a little bit about GBTC and, and kind of the other end of that argument, right? So you get the exposure through uh, 
public companies that are kind of derivatives of Bitcoin, but then you also go and you get uh, direct exposure. Um, although you guys aren't holding the Bitcoin, you know, GBTC technically is holding it for you. Uh, what's the logic uh, there? Sure. So uh, GBTC is traded basically over the counter. It's a, it's a trust where um, you, you for, for one, only one of our ETFs holds uh, GBTC. Uh, and, that, and, so, and we have kind of specific uh, restrictions on how much GBTC we can actually hold. Uh, and, and, and then Kathy kind of went into detail on that in the last episode, but basically uh, at a high level, it's if, if more than 10% of gross profits um, of, uh, uh, of, uh, are, are attributed to, let's say, GBTC or any commodity, then anything above that 10% is kind of deemed unqualified income. And that's kind of just the very nature of how the product is set up. So given that we are kind of an SEC registered or, or, or for, uh, RIA, um, there are only specific products that we can hold um, in our portfolios. So we can't necessarily just hold like, like custody Bitcoin private keys and say that we have explored to Bitcoin. And so GBTC, given that it, it trades over the counter, um, allows us to get kind of that exposure, but obviously there are trade-offs to the specific um, to the specific product. So, for instance, you know everything from kind of additional management fees that are incurred with something like GBTC to kind of the, the premium um, that GBTC has as a function of its kind of uh, redemption uh, or, or, or lack thereof. Um, and so there is a so so effectively it trades on the secondary markets. You have to be an accredited investor if you want to go through the trust at NAV. Um, and then you have a, what, what is now a six month lockup period in which then you can uh, uh, attempt to harvest that premium uh, when it then trades on the secondary markets. And so uh, as an ETF, we kind of buy and sell on the, on the secondary markets. Uh, and so have kind of that exposure to uh, the, the premium on the volatility. Um, and, but, but at the same time, this is really kind of, the only product that is that is really out there um, that allows for us to get exposure, uh, albeit limited and with its own kind of inefficiencies. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. But help us understand, like, as you guys are thinking through GBTC or Square or other companies, like, you guys obviously have a position on Bitcoin and crypto in general. So forget about how you're getting the exposure. Like, like what is that philosophy that ARK has uh, around Bitcoin and crypto in general? Sure. So I, I would say that it's definitely evolved uh, over time. I would say that in general, if we kind of take a step back and look at kind of the different philosophies of the crypto space more broadly, um, you have kind of this, the, the two salient distinctions between, um, between kind of, you have, you have basically two camps. You have, you know, at, at the simplest level, tech versus money. Um, or what I like to call kind of the innovation maximalists versus the monetary maximalists. On the uh, innovation maximalist side, you basically have a camp that views these networks as kind of software first. Um, and so they kind of look at the killer app as being these multi-sided marketplaces where kind of the primary consideration for or investor focus is really around uh, expressive, upgradable, kind of uh, composable base layers with extremely large feature sets um, in which the network infrastructure priority is kind of around scalability. So when you take that premise and when you got that premise, you look at Bitcoin as really just this slow 
boring kind of reliable thing that just does something extremely simply. And so isn't, you know, if uh, there's a, an, an interesting quote from, uh, from uh, an, an A16Z partner that basically says like, you know, if, if Bitcoin is really the only thing that can come out of this, or we, there's basically a, a failure of imagination. Um, and so on the, on the other side of that, you have kind of what I deem kind of the monetary maximalists, where if you look at these crypto assets from a value accrual standpoint, and you understand really what these are, and these are not kind of productive assets, um, these are really effectively money um, or kind of money obfuscated by technological jargon, then, then you realize that the killer app is not necessarily these multi-sided marketplaces that bootstrap, that have these bootstrapped mini economies, but are rather, the killer app is really money. And so if the killer app is money, the investor focus should be really around kind of having a network that provides specific assurances to maintaining that monetary integrity. And so by doing so, uh, your, your, your infrastructure, your network priority is no longer around kind of feature sets and scalability, but rather is around kind of the ability to provide these assurances to wealth and the ability to do so in a very trust minimized manner. Um, and so as we kind of, you know, Kathy has a, has a pretty strong monetary economics background. And, and, and as we've kind of dove into where most value is going to accrue, um, we, we kind of tend to focus more heavily on kind of the monetary maximalist side where you kind of look at these as, as effectively money and that, that money tends to, or currencies more broadly tend to be natural monopolies. And so this tends to be kind of a winner takes most, if not all game. And the winner is going to be not one that kind of can diversify on features because ultimately in the open source world, you know, tech, the tech side of things, I think, is highly commoditized, but those that kind of provide extremely strong assurances that are kind of almost irreplicable um, and when you kind of spin off a new network. And so that's why, you know, we have extremely strong conviction in Bitcoin specifically. Um, you know, that, 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 that's why our focus on, on research kind of remains on Bitcoin and kind of how to view these kind of what, what we like to call new novel social economic institutions. Um, as, as, as monetary kind of, uh, as a mechanism by which you can reliably, neutrally, and permissionlessly kind of store and transfer value. Yeah. And, and I think really what you're talking about here is like, there's this element of money's a belief system, right? right. And, and all the features in the world uh, can be replicated, but if people just don't believe in that actually being the currency of choice or, or the currency that holds value, uh, the features are uh, relatively unimportant to some degree. Precisely. I think that what's interesting to see is, um, you know, when you, when you take a step back and you see all the experimentation that's been done and all the kind of misallocated capital, um, we see that the, the engineers and the tech gurus really mistook a monetary revolution for a software or technological one. Um, and it's been really interesting to see kind of the different mindsets that, that, are, that I would say are still prevalent today, um, but that don't really recognize these as kind of political and social experiments first, but rather as kind of this new gadget or this software that has specific kind of tech implementation details that something like Bitcoin could never provide. Um, so you kind of like think about, you know, 
if only you know we could create a more efficient database or if only kind of bitcoin was faster if only you know there was a different monetary policy to bitcoin um and that that kind of dismisses the the underlying questions to what makes bitcoin kind of so unique and to your point to some degree the way that kind of a monetary good accrues value is exclusively based on reservation demand or the willingness to hold the asset and that willingness to hold the asset um, is kind of based on kind of the network effects that, that it has or that, that you speculate will, it will have. Um, and that in itself, I don't think is a kind of non-arbitrary belief. I think that belief is backed by kind of the specific, again, assurances that that network can provide. Um, so everything from kind of the credibility of monetary policy to the, the assurance that um, that, that the asset itself uh, won't be kind of arbitrarily seized or frozen, um, that, you know, that, it, that, there, that the transactions won't be censored, um, that, that the value can actually be seamlessly stored and transferred. So all these things kind of um, create this, uh, this feedback loop that to many seems circular, but that at the end of the day, there is a reason why kind of Bitcoin is the most liquid, that there is a reason why Bitcoin has the strongest network effect. And, and, and so, and, and that is because of the, the, the explicit trade-offs that it has had in saying, okay, we are going to have a hard, extremely predictable monetary policy. This is going to be slow, but it's going to be extremely secure. Um, and it's going to do a few things, but it's going to do a few things extremely reliably. Um, and so that's kind of, that, that's kind of where, where I think investors are starting to realize that there, there's going to be kind of a, a shift from look at, how many, look at how many features that this network can provide for me versus look at just the few features that it can provide reliably. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. What are your guys' thoughts on uh, Bitcoin's reaction to the liquidity crisis or liquidity trap uh, that was caused by COVID? So obviously there was this massive sell-off uh, in most asset classes, uh, Bitcoin at one point, uh, kind of the Black Thursday or whatever you want to call it, sold off 50%, ended the day down about 30. Um, and there's a lot of people who are saying, hey, this looks pretty correlated to me. Uh, and also, uh, it doesn't look like so much of a safe haven uh, type asset. Kind of how do you guys look at what, what's transpired over the last six weeks or so? Sure. So I, I'd say we're, we're still very far from returning to kind of business as usual. So there's questions definitely that remain as to you know when we'll get back on our uh, on the horse, uh, and and that, like I, I don't really know what the timetable there is, but I think it's been very interesting to your point to see kind of Bitcoin's response to uh, kind of the recent uh, uncertainty. Uh, we there's some great work that's been uh, put out by you know the coin metrics of the world. There's a recent piece from uh, the CEO of XBTO uh, who shared shared his views. Um, I think there are a few things that, that we, we, we need to consider here. First is that um, what, in a crisis, whether it's coronavirus or a financial crisis or a geopolitical crisis, there's always a crisis of liquidity. Um, and there's a vicious cycle that occurs where you have basically over-levered investors who need to sell across asset classes, across every asset class. And that creates kind of a rush to liquidity where the, the comfort of cash basically drives correlations to one. And, and I say this because I think it's been interesting to see how we've seen this evolution of narratives around Bitcoin during coronavirus, where to your point, there have been these two competing narratives 
that have now been heavily questioned during this first quarter. Um, the first is, again, Bitcoin as this uncorrelated financial asset. Second is Bitcoin as this kind of safe haven asset. Um, when we look back at, at the month of March, um, I, I don't think people were expecting to see it as severe of a drop as what we saw. Uh, it was, I mean, Bitcoin suffered its second largest daily drawdown in price history. Uh, and I think it was less than 15 minutes, you, you saw it go from 7,200 down to 5,400. It broke its 200-week moving average for the first time in seven years, and then con continued to sink to, to, to below 4K. Um, and post-sell-off, we realized that one of the largest contributors was uh, like the, the kind of these Bitcoin liquidations to satisfy margin calls on kind of the BitNexus of the world. Uh, where you saw BitMEX on, on Black Thursday, uh, it had almost a billion dollars in liquidations, uh, which is the most over a 24-hour period in, in, in years. And you combine that with kind of the exchange outages that it saw and all of the uncertainty around growing coronavirus. Uh, and so you kind of get this kind of natural sell-off. Um, what was interesting to see, and, and you actually mentioned this uh, with Kathy, was that it appears that the speculators um, were flushed out uh, and that longer term investors continued to hold. And, and, and so for true believers in Bitcoin, the fundamentals haven't changed. And when you dig into the numbers, uh, and Coinmetrics show, shows this, uh, some of the most, uh, most of the sellers were actually short term holders. And so if you take a look at Bitcoin's revived supply, which is how many old coins came back into circulation, after being untouched for a specific period of time, the vast majority um, of, uh, of the activity involved Bitcoin that had, been, uh, that, that had been held for less than a year. And so this kind of suggests that long-term holders really appeared unfazed. At the same time, you had this sell-off that was severe and it was in tandem with an equity market sell-off. And so there are legitimate questions that are raised around Bitcoin's if Bitcoin is worthy of, of allocation, if its claim to fame narrative is around its non-correlation and its safe haven attributes. Uh, if you dig into the numbers though, um, historically Bitcoin has been relatively uncorrelated uh, with let's say the S&P. Uh, since, since 2012, uh, the, the correlation has been roughly between negative 0.15 to 0.15, which is pretty low correlation. Um, over this last month, that kind of increased to new all-time highs. And so the question then becomes, does the recent correlation then justify people saying that Bitcoin and the S&P are now suddenly correlated? And, and the answer I would say, as many would say, is, is probably not. And so although you saw these short-term correlations shoot up, um, you have to recognize that they were under very unique market circumstances. Um, you had the news of the spreading of the coronavirus that continued to grow. You saw investors across every asset class rushing into cash. And back to, to, to my earlier point, um, in any risk-off environment, it, it seems like there's really no safe haven, um, especially not something that's like, you know, has as thin of order books as something like Bitcoin, that, that where a lot of the activity and trading activity is driven by speculation. But I mean, we even saw this with gold, right? The correlation between the S&P and gold uh, was also tied since 2013. Um, and so 
I think that um, we're going to see some sort of kind of reversion to the mean between Bitcoin and S&P, uh, but that in the short term, there may very well be um, kind of strong high correlation between the two. On the safe haven asset side, uh, I, I would say, you know, gold has traditionally been used as that primary example of a safe haven asset, and many like to coin Bitcoin as uh, a digital gold. Um, and so, you know, usually on certain times, you see the price of gold increase relative to other asset classes. Uh, and, and Bitcoin and gold's correlation historically um, has been uh, relatively low. Like they haven't ha there hasn't been very strong correlation. In fact, at the extremes, they've been negative. Um, and so when we saw Bitcoin and gold's correlation also spike up in March, similar to Bitcoin and S&P and gold and S&P, um, you know, does that mean that gold also failed as a safe haven asset? Um, and, and I would say the answer there is also probably not, uh, where you, you start to realize that although Bitcoin and gold um, may not act as safe haven assets during kind of a, a global pandemic, they may act as a safe haven asset, you know, in times of monetary inflation or QE. And so, you know, let's say given the recent trillion dollar injections that we've seen from the Fed, it's possible that you have Bitcoin like gold that may act um, as a safe haven in response to some events, but not others. Um, and so that's kind of where, where, I, uh, where, where I stand with, with kind of our, our reaction, where it's like, you know, we, we, we could be in the midst of what could be an interesting inflection point, um, where if you continue to see kind of central banks inject these money into the economy at these rates, then, you know, then it could act as that safe haven during that particular shock. Um, but really the broader point is that fundamentals haven't changed, um, that there needs that, that, that Bitcoin is still working as designed. It's producing roughly, you know, uh, you know, a block every 10 minutes. It has an audible and transparent supply, uh, and it enables kind of permissionless storage and transfer of value. So. Yeah. And it feels like the, the whole argument around correlation, non-correlation, the first thing uh, that just blows my mind is you have people, especially on Twitter and, and stuff, like pulling up two charts and be like, well, these two charts look like they look similar. Right. right. right? And it's like, no, correlation is actually a math equation. So people, one, have to realize like that there's actually math that goes into this. And, and we were talking there about kind of 0.15 uh, down to negative 0.15 is a way to quantify how uh, correlated these two assets are. On top of that, I, I love the example of, well, gold and treasuries and real estate, equities and everything sold off. So does that mean that there is no such thing as uh, a safe haven asset then, right? Other than maybe the dollar. And what I think people have to understand is like, we're still in the middle of the crisis. So if you go back to 2008, 2009, when gold sold off 29% over the summer of 08, what is everyone doing? Yelling and screaming, gold's no longer a safe haven asset. But all of a sudden, if you then zoom out to the full lifetime of the crisis, gold ends up over 300%, right? Hits an all-time high. And so I think it's really hard to uh, kind of make these determinations or, or uh, form opinions in the middle of the crisis because you don't have all of the data of uh, the hindsight of being able to look back and say, well, this is what happened throughout the entire thing. Because what you think, you know, six to eight weeks in, probably not going to be what you think on the uh, conclusion of this for better or for worse, right? Because you're just going to get more data and that uh, has a high probability of actually changing your mind uh, or, or what your assumptions or conclusions are. 
I mean, I think you bring up a, an excellent, even broader point where even on a returns basis, so many people like to look at specific timeframes and cherry pick specific returns. Uh, and and, and in, in Bitcoin in particular, we see this so often, but it's like, you know, you, if you are a long-term investor, and I think that, you know, especially with these, these things that are, are so volatile, it, it's in your best interest to, to be as long-term as possible. It's like, you got to take a step back and look at kind of, longer term holding period. So uh, when, when you do provide that extra context and that extra context being kind of a, a lengthened time horizon, then things start to look, um, things start to look a lot more attractive. Um, and so that's kind of, a, I think, a fallacy that a lot of um, shorter term investors and particularly traders fall into, where they look at one immediate reaction and they think that you know, everything prior to that is now, now needs to be completely dismissed and this is our new reality. Um, so just different, different uh, kind of a perspective on, on, on time periods as well. For sure. You guys have done a bunch of uh, work on Bitcoin mining and, and done a bunch of research there. Maybe talk a little bit about the work you guys have done and, and some of the conclusions uh, that you guys have come to based on that research. Sure. So we, uh, we've done a lot of work on Bitcoin mining. I think uh, Bitcoin mining is uh, one of the one of the areas of research where I kind of really dug into earlier on, we recently published a, a white paper kind of laying out um, kind of the different, the, the state of Bitcoin uh, mining, where you kind of start out with, you know, what is Bitcoin mining and what is proof of work and is proof of work uh, computationally intensive or, uh, or is it just, you know, there by design uh, and then go into kind of the evolution of mining hardware, looking at each kind of layer of the supply chain, um, and realizing kind of where competitive advantages exist, uh, where they are kind of increasingly becoming less relevant, and then coming up with some sort of uh, interesting overarching conclusion um, that kind of Bitcoin mining is, is here to stay, but that it is increasingly going to become kind of commoditized or, or going to replicate returns very similar to what we kind of see in the commodities industry where today kind of Bitcoin mining is, is profitable, but highly volatile, highly uncertain, attracts kind of a pool of, of capital um, that I would say is more risk seeking. Um, but as kind of the, as you see kind of depth in capital markets, as you see length in hardware cycles, as you see more predictability around the economics of mining, um, that, 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 that kind of, uh, the levels of profitability are, are going to kind of asymptotically converge to something that would be more attractive for, let's say, a risk neutral or, or someone more conservative who wants to kind of replicate a, a, a traditional or typical kind of cash flow business that offers kind of low and consistent returns. And so when you get, uh, when you get like a more mature derivatives market and when you get kind of more predictability on hardware and, and the economics, you start to unlock, uh, I, I would say, pools of capital that today would be kind of less interested in Bitcoin mining. Uh, and then, and so it remains kind of a, a, a fundamental kind of part of what makes Bitcoin secure. Um, and, uh, and it's something that I think increasingly uh, you'll have pools of capital that, that today don't have exposure that will kind of increasingly have exposure. Um, a, a, an area of research uh, on that point uh, that, that I recently dug into with uh, my analyst, with our industrial analyst, um, Sam, um, he, we, we asked kind of what, what do the economics of mining look like 
for let, let's say like a, let's say a natural gas peaker plant were to mine Bitcoin with its excess capacity. Um, so kind of to take a step back and, and provide context, um, th this this area of research was initially triggered from uh, an article that was published on Bloomberg last month um, in early March, where you had news of a natural gas peaker plant um, in upstate New York. Uh, I think they were called Greenwich uh, Generation. Uh, that announced uh, as part of the plant renovation that they were going to be deploying kind of thousands of mining rigs that would be used to mine Bitcoin with unutilized capacity. Um, and so people have, are increasingly seeing, seeking ways to, to, to mine Bitcoin. And so we asked ourselves, you know, if this application in particular had the potential to become widespread and what the economics of basically pairing Bitcoin mining with a low utilization power plant would yield. Um, uh, so peaker plants, uh, they, they're, tip, they, they're typically, uh, they, they typically only operate uh, on the hottest and coldest days of the year uh, when there's peak demand for energy, hence their name peaker plant. Um, and so as a result, the capacity utilization of an average peaker plant ends up being uh, about 10%. So another way to think about that is that you basically have peaker plants that are typically only running 10% of the electricity possible relative to it having run 24 seven. So what this means is you basically have these peaker plants that have highly variable cash flows, highly variable profitability. And if there are no hot or cold days in a year, then the peaker plant is, is effectively uh, deemed useless. And so what if, um, Instead of, you know, instead of just turning off or shutting down the peaker plant on days where there is no demand, you, you mine Bitcoin instead. Like what would the economics look like there? And so we kind of built out a, a, a model that, that baked into uh, a, a bunch of assumptions um, where you can basically at a high level divide the analysis into two. You look at what the return on capital of a peaker plant would look like without mining Bitcoin versus uh, what, it, what it would look like with mining Bitcoin. So without mining Bitcoin, you basically kind of back into an estimation on the, the operating and maintenance costs. Uh, you, you take a, a low capacity utilization and you, you try to calculate what the levelized cost of electricity would need to be, uh, and then any additional capital costs there, and, and you, you roughly yield uh, like a 12% uh, return on invested capital which is about the median return uh, on invested capital across industries and is, is actually higher uh, on the higher end for a utilities project. Um, and then on the mining side, you basically uh, have assumptions that are threefold. You have an assumption on kind of your mining operations, on mining hardware, and on the Bitcoin network itself. Uh, so you, if you assume you have the most cost-efficient hardware, um, that hardware has like a depreciation uh, 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 depreciates roughly every four years, has a lifetime value every four years. Um, and you're incurring a, a cost to maintain that hardware and you combine that with kind of assumptions on price and hash rate, um, you get a, you, you actually calculate a return on invested capital of around 19%. And so if you net the two and you combine the invested capital, you go from a 12% return on invested capital of just a peaker plant without Bitcoin mining to a weighted 17% uh, return on invested capital. Um, obviously, there are assumptions with Bitcoin's price um, and, and growth and hash rate. 
Um, but, but really, this is a really interesting way that, that, that investors could, or, or client operators could start exploring um, as providing additional uncorrelated sources of revenue, um, where in the case of the peaker plant, the result is not just increased returns from mining Bitcoin, but you also get a more profitable core business from these lower costs of capital. And so you're adding this new source of revenue in Bitcoin mining, and you're lowering your operational risk, and you're delivering more consistent returns. And when you think about this in the context of how Bitcoin mining has evolved from like, you know, a hobbyist activity where CPU is drawn from desktops to having these highly specialized data centers that perform um, kind of operations using exclusive hardware, it's like there are these very, very interesting secondary effects of the Bitcoin network that have spawned entire industries that we today like can only can only recognize in hindsight. Um, and I think that increasingly we're going to start to see these innovative ways of of uh, of figuring out kind of um, how to uh, continue to kind of support the Bitcoin network while also kind of adding uh, sources of revenue and, and profitability in other areas that don't have direct that don't have like a direct uh, uh, link to kind of Bitcoin. I'm going to turn on my light. Yeah, and, and I think that part, part of this um, now, uh, as you do the equation on if I'm a power producer, uh, should I start to explore Bitcoin mining as a revenue source? Uh, the price of oil all of a sudden tanking makes it even more interesting, right? Uh, because there's certain power producers or, uh, or energy producers um, who say, wait a second, if I take these goods and I sell them into a market where the price is literally falling off a cliff, today we're uh, you know, seeing $10 or so for a barrel of oil, which sounds insane, like there might be better uses of my, uh, my power, right? And uh, that's not obviously everyone in the energy production world, um, but, but definitely that goes into some of the equation as well, I would think, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is really just only one application of, of how to kind of utilize something like a power plant to, to figure out ways to mine Bitcoin. But I mean, to your point, there are so many other avenues that, that people are exploring, whether it's kind of the stranded energy assets that you see in hydro, um, whether it's kind of just, you know, uh, you know, flares, natural glass that gas flares that you're seeing like upstream data that they're they're working on um where it's where you know there's a question of oh wow bitcoin is like so wasteful and and look at all the energy that it that it that it's consuming um without recognizing that there are some very unique innovative uh pockets of energy that otherwise would have been dumped and sometimes dumped at a loss that can now be used um to uh, you know, convert electricity into a hard monetary asset. Um, and so, you know, that combined with, I, I think even, you know, institutions are starting to realize that as well. Um, what, what's interesting is, you know, the CME uh, is a public uh, company. They're an, they're an exchange. Um, they, they, they actually, um, you know, have cash settled Bitcoin futures listed. Um, they recently um, had like an annual uh, kind of board meeting election where, one of the nominees actually made the case for the need to diversify revenue streams within the CME um, by mining things like Bitcoin, um, where it makes sense, similar to how you see kind of uh, uh, a lot of, let's say, oil traders um, who, who 
who actually have exposure to the underlying kind of rigs to offset some of the volatility exposure, um, you're, you're likely going to see that with something like Bitcoin, where you want kind of exposure to every layer of the stack um, to create much more consistent and reliable kind of returns on capital. Um, and I think really this is only the, the beginning stages of that. Uh, it will be interesting to see kind of um, how Bitcoin stands the test of kind of this disinflationary monetary policy um, and, and the economics of mining Bitcoin um, as we kind of go into, uh, let's say, a fee, uh, a fee reward based uh, era. Yeah, it'll be super interesting. What, uh, what are the thoughts on uh, Bitcoin halving that's coming up? Yes. Um, so I, I, I think it's going, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, there is a, 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 you know, a huge debate on this um, about kind of its impact on Bitcoin's price. Uh, you broadly have kind of two camps that have formed. Um, you have one that kind of believes that the halving is already priced in. Um, you kind of citing mar uh, efficient market hypothesis. And then you have the other camp that, that expects kind of the, the happening to uh, plant the seed for what is uh, an increase in perceived scarcity uh, and a change in supply side dynamics or kind of like a supply shock. Um, so, you know, historically in Bitcoin has only seen two halvings. Uh, we've seen that, that, uh, that it has been this sort of catalyst or interesting, there's been an interesting overlap between a halving and uh, a, a run in price or kind of a catalyst for kind of the next bull run. Um, but, but again, you know, whether that's a coincidence or whether that's, you know, a, a, a law that is baked into nature, um, you know, you, you, get, you get a back and forth. I think that I, I personally um, kind of, there, there are a few things that I know will likely happen for sure. Um, one, I think we're definitely going to see kind of minor-led selling pressure, um, where unless you do see kind of a Bitcoin doubling, um, prices will, you know, uh, you, you're going to see kind of a, a, a decline in the, in the break-even price for a set of miners. And so these miners are likely going to have to either uh, temporarily or permanently shut off their, um, their operations. Um, we saw that with kind of the recent difficulty adjustment. Um, and, and so uh, that uh, will, will likely see a drop in hash rate if kind of Bitcoin's price um, does not see that run up. Uh, but then the, the counter to that is like if you assume kind of constant demand and all else equal, um, <laughs> then, then assuming that you have a, a cut in your supply, then you effectively have kind of uh, <laughs> half the supply now needs to be absorbed by, by the market versus, the, versus prior to the halving. And so the remainder is it, it, kind of bled into what, the circulating supply. And so that's kind of like, at the very least, uh, a run-up that many people uh, argue is going to occur, where you, know, you now need only half of what, um, what, what previously needed to be absorbed by the market um, after Bitcoin halving. Um, and, then, and then another thing is that, you know, there is this interesting shelling point around Bitcoin halvings more broadly, where whether or not you believe that the price that Bitcoin halving is priced in, you know, Bitcoin has no marketing. And oftentimes kind of as a retail investor, as someone who's just learning about this, 
um, seeing kind of this shelling point that everyone points to where it's like, wow, I'm actually increasingly realize that this is a kind of a strictly scarce asset and that at the end of the day, um, its inflation is, is zero, right? Like there are a predefined kind of 21 million Bitcoin and over time, you kind of just get Bitcoin just, just uh, unlocking. And there's a debate, is like, is Bitcoin created or is it discovered? Um, and so I, I think that, you know, at the very least, what we can say is once the block rewards have, minor revenue will likely be cut in half while minor uh, costs will remain constant because revenue is denominated in Bitcoin while costs are denominated in USD. And, and, uh, but that once kind of inefficient miners exit the market, your profit margins will likely improve. You'll get like a difficulty readjustment uh, and that will reduce selling pressures and you'll likely see increases in price there. Uh, but uh, in, in general, I think that, you know, it, it, it will be a positive event. I am still hesitant to say that like, you know, that the having is going to create a bull run like we've seen historically. Uh, but again, only time will tell there. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be really interesting too, I think, because when you start to evaluate um, the having, I always say that uh, one it has to happen, right? So like a lot of people, I think just assume, Hey, it's going to happen, but we, we have to see that actually occur. Two is the whole idea of it being priced in would uh, depend on everyone knowing that it's going to happen and also understanding the impact that it should have. Right. right. And we all know that uh, not everyone even knows that it's going to happen that holds Bitcoin. Uh, and also uh, there's even less people who understand that it's going to happen and could explain to you what the impact should be. And so I think it's just, um, you know, the, the debate is less about like, do 100% of people know or not? It's more about what percentage, like, like how big is that delta between the informed and the uninformed? Uh, and there's no right answer, right? We, it, right? It's more of just kind of speculation. Uh, and in hindsight, we'll be able to say, oh, it was either priced in or not. It just seems structurally, it's really hard to make that argument that it is priced in uh, if 100% of the people don't understand. Right? That's, that's, that's a great point. I, I guess I, I would say that what's interesting, and I, I go back and forth on this, is that does it matter that people are aware of the having, or does it matter that people are aware that like Bitcoin is just scarce, that there are only 21 million Bitcoin, right? And so... It, the, the, the whole value proposition behind Bitcoin is that there are only, for a lot of people, is that it is this strictly scarce asset. Now, whether or not it is unlocked um, every four years or every eight years or every two years, or if it's there and, and, and it, it, there's just going to be no, no further Bitcoin created, um, I think is secondary to actually understanding that Bitcoin is strictly scarce. And so I would say that that's where like the pushback comes where, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily matter that there's a halving. Um, and what, what is priced in is Bitcoin scarcity. And in fact, since day one, Bitcoin's inflation is actually zero. Um, but, but again, I, I, I go back and forth because there's also like kind of this reflexive property or the nature of if you have, you know, a lot of people kind of uh, uh, banking on this having creating a lot of buzz around Bitcoin scarcity, that can create some very interesting kind of second order effects. I mean, even anecdotally, uh, I, I had my, my, my landlord who had, who, you know, we've, we've spoken kind of very high level about Bitcoin in the past. Uh, and she recently came across an article about the having, and she was like, oh, oh yeah, you were telling me that this thing is scarce. 
you know, how do I buy Bitcoin and, and, and how do I learn about this stuff? Um, and so that's like, you know, who knows, like that, that, that might be indication that actually, you know, you know, the having is not priced in because although someone understands or, or, or recognizes subconsciously that Bitcoin is scarce, they don't really understand that, that, the, that there are these kind of specific events in which the, the, the scarcity is only reinforced. Um, so I think that that's really what it is. It's like a reinforcement of scarcity that allows almost a, a, for Bitcoin to market itself as, as strictly scarce. For sure. Uh, speaking of uh, digital currencies in general, there's been a bunch of uh, changes, I think, or, or concessions when it comes to Libra. Um, and, and a lot of that was driven by regulatory pressure, which obviously uh, part of the value proposition of Bitcoin is there's no CEO or founder to kind of plug in front of government, you know, organizations or Congress or anything like that. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about how you guys have thought about Libra and, and then some of those uh, recent updates uh, to their plans. And kind of has that changed your mind positively or negatively? Sure. So um, to your point, Facebook, uh, I think yeah, last week, uh, they unveiled kind of a host of new changes um, to, to Libra. Uh, it, it was actually set to launch this quarter, uh, but obviously kind of given all the regulatory pressure, uh, they, you know, you, you had natural uh, delays. Um, and so I think the biggest thing, the biggest pushback that we saw was that, you know, this was going to be a stable coin backed by uh, a basket of fiat currencies and government bonds, but that, the composition of that basket would be to the discretion of kind of this Libra Association, which is this independent membership organization that is designed to facilitate the operations of the system and the administration of the Libra Reserve. And so immediately you had Libra that was met with extremely intense backlash from these regulators that accused uh, Libra of being a, a massive threat to uh, monetary sovereignty of governments. Um, so for one, I'll, I'll say an aside, I think that when we saw that, I, I, thought, I think that was like really interesting to see kind of the regulators response to this. And when you look at this in the context of, you know, Bitcoin 10 years ago to Bitcoin today and the cryptocurrency, however you want to define that, um, it's, it's, it's quite in, uh, amazing to see this shift in narrative where, you know, you go from this thing is on this random kind of email listserv uh, with a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, tech nerds, and this is just basic nerd money to like, you know, Bitcoin, you know, actually just being for drug lords and criminals and terrorists to, you know, actually Bitcoin is, you know, for VCs to, to have some sort of a mechanism to pump and dump um, to, to now recognizing, oh, wait, this whole thing, whether it's Facebook or, or, uh, um, or Bitcoin, but the idea of a cryptocurrency, even if I argue that really the only thing related that, that, that the two are have, and similar is like their label as a cryptocurrency um, is now set on the world stage uh, and regulators are looking at, at, at Facebook and we're seeing kind of Facebook demise in, in that there is this almost single point of failure where you actually have this finger to point to, where you know, Facebook naturally not being even a crowd favorite, um, there is now like an excuse. There is kind of this neck that you can choke, um, all while Bitcoin kind of 
is slowly kind of working in, in the background where it's, if I can't kill number one, well, at least let me go to number two. And so that's kind of what we saw with this, this massive backlash. Uh, some of the changes I thought were very interesting. And I think, you know, there's questions of was this capitulation or was this a pivot? I would say that this is much more of a capitulation than it was a pivot. Um, a, a few of like kind of the main changes that were made, uh, you, you had kind of uh, Libra saying that they were going to offer single currency stable coins um, instead of kind of additional uh, currency coins. So you basically, instead of having that uh, basket of currencies in which, uh, in which Libra uh, defined the composition of that basket, you basically had of the, of, of the currencies in that basket, kind of separate, fully uh, reserved single asset pegs to, um, to that coin. So a Libra USD, a Libra Euro, a Libra Singaporean dollar. Um, and so uh, then you, and so for kind of emerging markets um, or for, for developed nations, like that was that you could basically facilitate kind of value transfer um, uh, without necessarily having to, to, to shy away from um, the monetary policy of that actual nation. Uh, and so Libra made sure to emphasize that, that the vision had always been for the Libra network to complement fiat currencies and not compete with them, which I thought was a very interesting concession. And, and it also appears that Libra now is basically just catering to central banks, um, where you basically have this, now it's like a platform for central bank digital currencies, um, where uh, Libra is even saying that, you know, we want to be there when a new central bank launches their own currency and have it on our platform. Um, and so I would say that, you know, we came into this kind of quite interested in um, Libra and what it was doing. Uh, and I, I think, I think it, it, it was a very, very interesting value proposition, particularly for emerging markets. Immediately we saw kind of a, a, a backlash um, where um, you had both emerging markets, like let's say India, that said that there's no way that this is happening, um, and developed uh, nations uh, amongst the kind of nations in the EU and the United States that are saying, we do not want this to happen. Um, and so it feels like now Libra is basically just an e-money provider for uh, like central bank currencies. Um, that they're, that I, I understand that they're kind of, business model wasn't really around kind of Libra in particular, but was around kind of Calibra or providing kind of an infrastructure. Uh, but even there, like Facebook isn't even building the infrastructure um, in, in this newly revamped white paper where you actually have, you actually need third party service providers. So if you live in a country that, that, that's lacking kind of developer presence of Libra, um, or you have one that's sanctioned or restricted uh, due to kind of Libra's compliance checks, which was another one, um, then you basically won't be able to use that. And I think that that was like the biggest red flag for a lot of people who thought this was going to be an interesting way to kind of on-ramp people into crypto, that if Libra allowed for you to export your private keys, that this would be a way for the everyday person to see that they have full ownership or property of these private keys, but they go and they enter kind of, we're going to kind of enhance the safety of this uh, payment system with a robust compliance framework. What that entails is we are going to basically have it such that 
that any kind of sort any capital controls, any uh, restrictions um, on specific nations must be uh, abided by, and any kind of unhosted wallet in specific jurisdictions um, will not uh, be valid in kind of this Libra ecosystem. Um, and so when you think about one of the principal reasons for having created Libra in the first place as kind of trying to serve this unbanked population, really as a mechanism for convenience of payments more than as like this new money, um, Libra has been kind of completely stripped of the, those features. Um, and, and so when you, when you have to adhere to these strict capital controls and these regulations, um, then it basically just becomes uh, like any sort of payment processor. Uh, and and I, I, it'll be interesting to see how and whether they, they do end up pivot and, and, and Calibra could still end up being a success, uh, but they are shying away more and more from kind of the value proposition of what these permissionless systems are supposed to enable. Um, and and, and I, I would say their last most notable one was kind of completely saying that they were going that the transition to a permissionless system um would would no longer uh be uh within the interest of libra uh and that now we're going to basically have kind of an electoral based system um to add new nodes and remove nodes uh accordingly it is uh it's one of these weird things where it seems like facebook legitimized Bitcoin and crypto in certain parts of the world, and then within weeks or months, also legitimized why the decentralized permissionless components of Bitcoin is so valuable, right? It's like by just them simply putting their, their toe in the water and saying, hey, we think that this is valuable. We're actually going to build a team here. We're going to go after this opportunity. There's a lot of people that kind of woke up and said, whoa, you know, a lot of people might not like Mark Zuckerberg, but not a lot of people think he's stupid, right? And so right. If, if him and Facebook think this is important, there must be something here. But then they drag him in front of Congress or Senate, right? You know, and a bunch of other stuff that goes on. And people start to realize, oh, that's why that decentralized permissionless uh, design is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's been so interesting to see, to see that. You, you kind of see kind of Libra now, uh, uh, everyone's eyes were on it during the time that it received such backlash and you saw and many were saying like this is going to end up kind of elucidating how much or how what bitcoin's value proposition actually is and that is like not having kind of these centralized governing bodies that are enforcing top-down control but rather these open decentralized networks that are providing kind of bottom-up um uh, foundations for whatever assurance uh, is being provided. And I think that uh, if anything, that this will, to your point, kind of open the eyes as to where the value propositions uh, are and what, what people should be looking for. I think, you know, the JPM point was also to a certain extent, a similar example to that, where, you know, they labeled it as a cryptocurrency when it was really just a USD account uh, for institutions. Um, and, 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 and said, okay, this is a cryptocurrency. Uh, this allowed for a lot of people who um, didn't consider this to be worthy of exploration to say, oh, wow, well, if JP Morgan is now coming out with something called a cryptocurrency, I probably should look into this. 
And upon looking into this, you start to realize just how different it is from, let's say, Bitcoin. And in doing so, you, you realize, okay, well, actually, I think Bitcoin is the most interesting thing of all. So it's, it's free marketing, I, I, I would say, uh, for, for a lot of these uh, cryptocurrencies. We will take it. Speaking of other cryptocurrencies, before we finish up, uh, Ether and the uh, Ethereum community. Uh, I know you have a bunch of thoughts there. Maybe share kind of what you guys are thinking um, in the second most popular uh, cryptocurrency. Sure. So I think that um, Ethereum um, is increasingly starting to realize like the importance of having Ether, the underlying asset, as uh, as showing. Kind of uh, that it is a money, um, you know. It, we, we, we very similar to how kind of Bitcoin went through growing pains around its narratives of you know is this a cash system? Is this a P to P digital gold? Um, you know, Ethereum is starting to realize kind of the, the same things of okay, maybe this is not a world computer. Maybe this is native asset that can fuel um, an economy of decentralized finance or whatever the case is. Um, I would say that uh, from, a, from a value accrual standpoint, from an investment standpoint, um, there is an increasing realization that you know, value capture does not equal value creation. That again, these cryptocurrencies are not productive assets, that, uh, that a lot of the value is actually going to be driven by reservation demand, by the willingness to hold. Um, and I, I like to view Ethereum, um, although I don't think that, you know, over the long term, uh, I, I do think that Bitcoin is going to kind of accrue more value in a power law distributed manner than Ethereum might. I, I like to view Ethereum in the, in the eyes of actually Ethereum killers, it, it, very similar to how Bitcoiners view Ethereum. Um, it, it, there's, a, there's a really, really interesting kind of um, uh, bridge that is, that is, being, uh, that, that, that is being formed um, where very similar to how Bitcoiners view Ethereum's odds at usurping it, Ethereans are now viewing Ethereum killer's odds at usurping it in the same way. Um, so we saw kind of a number of these Ethereum killers that were planning to launch their mainnets, um, where you, you saw like, you know, the algorands of the world, the hash graphs of the world um, that, 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 that had a lot of promise. Uh, and that obviously in bull markets, uh, you know, anything tends to trade up. We saw in the ICO boom, uh, you know, when Bitcoin was trade or when Ethereum was trading at, uh, you know, um, like $19, $20 billion in market cap or $130 billion in market cap. Um, it, you had, you had like the Cardano's and the EOS's of the world who hadn't even launched their mainnet that were trading at 10, $20 billion. So you had very, very questionable fundamentals. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the price really didn't reflect that. Um, in bear markets, what we're starting to see is that the, the disposition is definitely to trade down. Um, and so um, what's interesting is that a lot of Ethereans are now saying that it's very, very hard to justify valuations for these Ethereum killers based on kind of superior technology alone. Um, so what we've seen is that uh, Ethereum is basically saying it doesn't matter you know, whether or not you have this next Ethereum killer that can provide much more smart contract functionality than Ethereum can, because look at Ethereum's developer activity, look at its network's effects. Um, and to Ethereum's credit, it has built out a, a robust set of stakeholders since mainnet um, and, and far more uh, successfully than any sort of Ethereum killer. But if you notice kind of the tone 
I think that this tone, it, it, we're starting to, we, we, we saw with Bitcoin versus Ethereum, we, we, we're starting to see with Ethereum versus Ethereum killers. Um, Bitcoin in the same way says that, you know, in the open source world, technology is nowhere near kind of a defensible um, kind of moat as to what we traditionally see. Um, Ethereans are now applying that same logic to Ethereum killers. Uh, and so we understand kind of the characteristics of, uh, let's say, proof of work uh, based commodities like we're seeing in Ethereum 1.0 and, uh, and Bitcoin. Uh, there is yet to be kind of a robust literature and, and, and uh, validation around kind of more proof of stake created uh, capital assets. Um, but I, I just find that the tone um, that uh, Ethereans are now applying to Ethereum killers to be very reminiscent of what, what Bitcoiners have been saying this whole time. And this kind of really just goes back to um, what these are and, and where most value is going to accrue is going to depend on kind of the network effects that these, that these assets have been able to build and the willingness to hold these assets more broadly. Yeah, it is the most fascinating part of all of crypto to me is the debate between the technology versus the belief system. Yeah. And uh, I think part of what has surprised me, um, you know, having a background working at some of the large tech companies and understanding a lot of that community and, and ecosystem, and then also on the Wall Street side and the finance uh, community, uh, they look at these problems very different, right? They're very biased in their perceptions, uh, but in some weird way, uh, the finance people understand money much better than most technology people do. This, you know, big overgeneralization, but but definitely uh, to some degree. And it's almost like the winner of the debate, right? I kind of put winner in air quotes. Is going to be is it just money that matters and all the properties that come along with that, or is it the technology that matters and all the things that come with that? Uh, I think you and I have a perspective, but I don't know if that debate has been settled in the sense of uh, there's a market consensus, which then that leads to the opportunity, right? Is there's people kind of betting on both sides of both assets and there'll be winners and losers over a long period of time. And absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you just have to divide them into two completely different investment philosophies. I don't think one is right or wrong. I just think that it's important to delineate between the two. Um, and if I were to kind of just from a risk to reward standpoint, you know, look at, you know, historically how a lot of these uh, other crypto assets have been kind of levered beta plays on Bitcoin that within the cryptocurrency community, there is still pretty strong correlation um, that if you uh, if you're like an institutional investor uh, and you're looking to kind of allocate into the crypto space, I think you have to first be convinced of Bitcoin before anything else. And then when you look at where most value is going to accrue and you start to recognize this from a monetary lens, um, it, 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 it's hard to justify from a risk to reward standpoint, allocating at least in the foreseeable future um, into things other than Bitcoin. Having said that, you know, let's say 10, 20 years down the line, if the whole kind of internet 3.0 thesis does play out uh, and there are kind of interesting implications on reversing the internet stack, and figuring out ways to kind of further disintermediate data providers. There, there could be some very, very interesting VC type bets. Uh, but I think that there are very, I think that the, the, the way that most value is going to accrue 
is quite paradoxical to what we see in traditional venture capital of kind of the prey and spray model that, 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 that most uh, VCs employ. They're now kind of employing to, to, to the crypto space. Um, but again, this is a, an ongoing debate. I think that it, it is very, very interesting um, and to see kind of the value of cruel dynamics evolve over time, uh, really that just goes to show that only time will tell. On Bitcoin, man. <laughs> but what, um, uh, before we end, I'm going to surprise you with something that you don't know because since we started recording, when we were started recording, oil was at about $10 a barrel and uh, it is now negative. It has literally dropped to under $0. And it's wow. currently crude oil is currently trading at negative a dollar forty three. People are texting, so uh, pretty nuts that to see crazy. this happen. That is crazy. That is I don't even know what to say. In <laughs> <laughs> our big ideas, we said we had peak oil demand in around twenty twenty two. So we're we're close to that. It was like trading at sixty or seventy dollars a barrel. Uh, that 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 when we said ten to fifteen dollars, people were in absolute shock. They're like there's no way. And, uh, and like kind of Kathy likes to say, you have commodities that are usually priced at the margin. Um, and, you know, things like kind of the extra electric vehicle and, 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 and an autonomous angle, I think is also kind of contributing to just this complete cascading effect that we've seen. Obviously, uh, you know, you know the, 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 that's, that's just, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had to look at my phone four times because I was like, what the hell do you mean is negative? Uh, all right. Where, where can people find you on, uh, on the internet and uh, any of the research or work that you, uh, you're putting out? Sure. So you can find ARC at arc-invest.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter. I'm uh, Yasin ARC, uh, A-R-K. And, uh, and we have a bunch of, uh, uh, ARC has its own Twitter account and all of our analysts are also on Twitter. So uh, feel free to join us on the Twitter sphere. Yeah, you guys are fantastic. I uh... I said it with uh, Kathy, but uh, I just appreciate the kind of data-driven, research-driven uh, approach to uh, innovative technology, because it's funny how uh, if you do the work, the data tells you some of the answer, right? Thank you. Well, I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I, I was saying this uh, for a long Bitcoin short, the banks uh, quoted Pomp. So th thanks for everything that you do. I think that, you know, a lot of people who aren't relatively familiar with everything that's going on in the investing world now more broadly, um, find a lot of value in, in just the, in, in listening to the things that you have to say and the guests that you bring on. Uh, every one of my friends who's not in the investing world uh, always asks, what, what, what's a good resource for me to just start to you know, dabble in, in the investing world? And, and you're definitely one of the first that I bring up. So appreciate all your efforts as well. I appreciate that very much. Well, we will, uh, we will continue to do this as long as uh, we continue to debate all of these ideas. So I appreciate taking the time to, uh, to join us. Thank you, sir. Have a great one and stay safe. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, Simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.